Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Professor Salvatore Bobones. Professor Bobones is a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney. He is also the director of the China and Free Societies program at the Center for Independent Studies. And he's a regular contributor, really, I would say, a prolific contributor to outlets like Quadrant, the Sydney Morning Herald, and the Australian, as well as many other outlets. He's also the author of a number of books, including The New Authoritarianism, Trump, Populism, and the Tyranny of Experts, which came out in 2018, and more recently of Australia's universities, Can They Reform? And I've heard him talk about this before, and usually he likes to add the spoiler alert, the answer is no. (laughs) So I thought I'll, I'll steal that joke from you. Okay, so easy question to start out with. Why did you write this book, and why did Australia's universities in particular interest you? And then as a secondary question, I, I've heard that you also wanted to write a little bit about New Zealand universities, but didn't in the end. Well, thanks, James, for asking and having me for on the program. I should correct something. First, you promoted me to professor three times, but in Australia, an associate professor is not a professor. It's an associate professor, or as they like to say, an ass pro. And I'm not making that up. <laughs> that is the terminology okay. for an associate professor. I stand corrected. Uh, look, you're, I, you're obviously a professor in my heart. Thank you, James. I wrote the book because I have been teaching in Australia and writing about higher education for the press in Australia for, well, now going on 15 years. And coming from the United States, I used to teach at University of Pittsburgh. Of course, I did my PhD at Johns Hopkins in the United States. I went to undergraduate college in the United States. Gives you kind of a different perspective on how things operate in different countries. And professionally, I'm a comparative sociologist. And so I'm interested not so much in how one particular country works, but in how one country works in relations to others. And I consistently found here in Australia a kind of parochialism, a a seeming lack of knowledge of reform that had gone on in the rest of the world or of what best practice was in the rest of the world. And I think an illusion, a collective illusion here in Australia that what Australia was doing was world class. And why was it world class? Because every time we ourselves evaluated ourselves, we determined that we were at a world class level, which is really not as good as having external validation of what you're doing. So the book really was an attempt to put Australia's university performance in some kind of global and comparative perspective, also on an overtime perspective. So I believe in not, not only making comparisons across countries, but making comparisons across time. Australia in the 1990s was a very different place to Australia in the 2010s and now in the 2020s. I was interested in extending this work to New Zealand. Now, as a foreigner, and I'm American, I don't have Australian citizenship, I am a foreigner here. As a foreigner, I naturally see Australia and New Zealand as being two peas in a pod, very similar, similar institutional backgrounds, having institutions that talk to each other a lot and thus have evolved or co-evolved in ways that they face the same problems in much the same ways. And I was interested in bringing New Zealand institutions into the book. That would have been a lot of work because it meant for me getting all the statistics for Australia from one source and then going to a whole new set of sources, getting all the stats for New Zealand. And so before I did all that work, I reached out to New Zealand newspapers and New Zealand publishers asking, look, would you be interested in this? If if I wrote a book on Australian universities that gave New Zealand 20% of the space, because let's face it, Australia has 
39 universities. Uh, New Zealand, I believe, has eight, if I remember right. That's right. Uh, so we would expect, you know, no more than maybe 20% of the space to go to New Zealand. Would you be interested in the book? Would you write op-eds about it? Would you feature it in your newspapers? And the answer was a categorical no. And from one person, I even got a very grumpy, you know, I would never give space to a book that treated New Zealand as an appendage to Australia. And so I didn't study New Zealand in the book. It's a shame. There are a few comparative statistics for New Zealand, but New Zealand is treated in the book the same way the UK and the US are, as, or Canada, as just another English-speaking country comparison case. Great. Okay. Well, maybe over the course of this interview, we can talk a tiny bit about New Zealand, and you can help us and help me in particular do some more work on, on New Zealand universities. Okay. So let's turn to your analysis then. You've got a number of thick chapters in this book, and you start off really, I think, with the with the key issue, a key issue, but in, in, in some ways it's something that underlies the whole of your analysis, and that's funding. So are Australia's funding. universities underfunded? And if they're not underfunded, why do so many people seem to believe that they're underfunded? Well, we have to ask the question right up front, what does underfunded mean? In public economics, the theory, the standard economic theory approach to public in public interest institutions like universities and nonprofit organizations, a public institution simply spends the budget it's given. There's no such thing as underfunding. If the government funds a a given level of road network, well, it's the job of the public institution to build the best roads possible with that money. It's not to say, well, we could have better roads. You could always have better roads. You could always have greater services. And this approach to public economics has evolved because in the private sector, we have the discipline of the market. What is the right level of resources to provide? Well, the level of resources that drives marginal profit down to zero, right? We have good theory about that. What's the right level of public funding to provide? Well, every public institution could always do with more money. They'll find a way to spend more money. So if we want to know, are they underfunded? We have to ask underfunded relative to what? And the two obvious comparisons are, are they underfunded, underfunded compared to peers in other countries? And are they underfunded compared to their prior historical funding levels in their own history? On both of those metrics, Australia's universities are relatively well-funded, not exceptionally well-funded, but research at Australian universities is on average better funded than in the US, European Union. It's about on average on a par with the UK. Research in Australia is funded at about the same level it's been funded in Australia for the last 30 years. So there, there's no real underfunding crisis for research. When it comes to teaching, there's a, there's a perception that teaching is underfunded because students have been asked to pay a higher proportion of the costs of their own degrees. But Australia has something called the HEX system, the Higher Education Contribution System, which is effectively, it's structured as a loan. So students feel like, oh, my student loan debt is going up and up. But it's not a loan in any economic sense of what a loan is. It is a tax on university graduates. That is to say, it's a loan that you only have to pay when your income reaches a threshold that is above the median income in Australia. Then you start paying back your loan. Well, that's a tax, right? If you're a university graduate whose income reaches a certain threshold, you then have to pay for university. Otherwise, you never have to pay for it. And so this narrative that rising university costs have meant that students no longer study what they truly desire to do, that's ridiculous. If you want to be a starving artist, you can go get your art degree, become an artist. You'll never pay back a cent of your art degree unless you become a Damien Hirst. Yeah, well, okay, if you're selling skulls for a million dollars, 
yeah, you got to pay back your hex debt, but otherwise you'll never pay it back. So it's really a best of both worlds system. It's a system that is, I think, extraordinarily well designed to put the burden of universities on the public, that public does support universities extensively, and on those individuals who benefit most from the university, that is, the graduates specifically who do well later in life. Okay, so one of the things I found most astonishing about your analysis was the sheer number of international students that you reveal are in Australia. I mean, uh, you calculate the number of international students per 1,000 head of population, and you have a neat table which shows that um, in Australia, number of international students per 1,000 of population is something like 17.9, is the figure you give. In New Zealand, it's 11.1. And the next highest is the UK, 6.7 international students per head per, per thousand people, basically, in the country. That's pretty astonishing. So basically, what, what, what that suggests is that you know, Australia is far, far ahead in the number of international students. And then interestingly enough, New Zealand, there's, there's sort of a gap, and then there's New Zealand is next, and then there's a gap, and then there's this chasing pack. And you have various other sentences where you point out things like the entire population, so roughly 20% of the entire population of people aged 18 to 30 in Australia are probably international students, which is pretty amazing. So so what's going on with that? Why is why are there so many international students in Australia and so many more than in comparable nations? First, you're absolutely right. And I want to stress this international student numbers in Australia are in a literal sense off the chart. If you try to chart them with the numbers for other countries, they're just extraordinary. Now, I'm an immigrant to Australia. I'm by no means anti-immigrant. I embrace diversity. I think it's fantastic to have an international milieu at your universities. But when you get to the point where a third of your students are international, and a third is the system-wide average for all of Australia, one third of the students in any typical class in Australia are international. At that point, international students aren't enriching the educational environment. They're operating as a drag on the ability to teach in English. They're operating as, a, as an administrative challenge to just dealing with so many international students. I mean, to put it in perspective, it's hard to find a U.S. university that has more than 10% international students. Even universities that we think of as highly international in the U.S., typically max out at around 10. There are a few that go up to 15. The most international university in the entire United States, among public universities, I stress, is University of California, San Diego at 19% international. In Australia, the average <laughs> for the whole system is 33%. So it's just extraordinary. Now, the reason we have so many international students is that there's been a conscious marketing effort on the part of Australian universities and now getting the Australian government involved to view international education as a quote unquote export industry. So there's a strategic effort to bring international students to Australia. But how are they able to get so many international students? Well, it comes down to two things. It's easy to get in. That is, for a U.S. or Canadian university, you have to take the SAT or the ACT. You typically have to take some kind of test. For Australia, we accept really almost anybody. I mean, there are standards, but the standards are extremely low. And second, it's cheap. An Australian education is benchmarked at a much lower tuition level than would be charged in the U.S. or Canada. It's similar to what tuition was in the U.K., before Brexit. Now, post-Brexit, 
tuition fees are going up in the UK for international students. Pre-Brexit, international student tuition was kept at a low level. Well, there are a lot of technical reasons due to the fact that universities couldn't admit many foreign students because they had to admit EU students on an equal basis with UK ones. So the UK is right now in a state of flux. But Australian value proposition for an international student was very strong because the amounts charged were very low. And in fact, we can see that clearly in the correlation between the Australian dollar, if we take a trade-weighted average of the Australian dollar's exchange rate, and just chart that against international student new commencements, it's an extraordinarily strong correlation. Students are coming here because it's inexpensive. When it gets expensive, we have fewer students. Now that it's cheap, the Australian dollar is right now very low, we would expect a new influx of international students. All right. So, um, of course, the uh, fact that there are so many international students in Australian universities is a great thing because, as we know from the popular narrative, you can take a lot of funds from the international students and you can use it to subvent domestic students and to subvent you know, all the things which we want universities to do in Australia. Is that what's really going on? Well, look, thank you, James, for setting that up so kindly <laughs> for me. Your, I mean, I, know, I have a listeners. sense that that's not your theory, but yeah, that's the as setup. The, as our listeners will <laughs> guess, you're being facetious. No, that's not what's happening. We are underpricing our international student tuition. And people are shocked to hear that because they see this enormous number for international student tuition, and they contrast that to what Australian students pay. And I tell them, but, but wait a minute, Australian students may pay a small amount, but the taxpayer is subsidizing those Australian students. Once you throw in the taxpayer subsidies, so once you throw in the direct subsidy from the Australian government, International and Australian tuition is roughly the same. Once you throw in the indirect subsidy, which is to say the Australian government and Commonwealth and state governments combined, they paid for the campuses, they pay for the library, they pay for the research being done by the academics at that university. Once you load all of that onto Australian students, because of course the Commonwealth only provides funding for a library because an institution is teaching Australian students. If, if an institution weren't teaching Australian students, they wouldn't just say, here's a library, here's some science labs, here's a billion dollars of research funding. Okay. So once you load the Commonwealth funding onto the implicit subsidy for Australian students, then you find that historically international students have paid much less than Australian students. And in fact, international student tuition has only recently converged with domestic student total all-in payments on behalf of domestic students. And even that convergence masks a lot of differences between universities. So there's been some convergence in recent years so that now, or latest data, 2019, pre-COVID, latest data, international student tuition has finally reached the same level as domestic student tuition. But even that is only driven by the fact that international students tend to go to the most expensive universities, Sydney, ANU, UNSW, Melbourne, while domestic students go to less expensive universities. So if you do it in a university by university basis, you still find that international students generally in most universities are in effect getting a discount. They're paying less than what is paid. And I'm going to use very careful language here. They're paying less than what is paid on behalf mm -hmm. of domestic students. Okay, so let me just try and repeat that because it's something I struggled to work out when I was reading the book, but I think it's a really essential part of your theory. So basically what you're saying is that, or at least until very recently, the amount paid by domestic fees plus various types of government funds, funds from the Australian Commonwealth, were actually more per student than just the international student fees, right? That's absolutely correct. Okay, 
So, and you're saying that, you know, in recent years, that's actually changed a bit. So uh, that, which I guess changes things considerably. But so what, what, one question I had, one sort of po possible sort of policy suggestion, I suppose I had is, well, okay, then couldn't you just, why wouldn't you just increase the international fees to the point at which they were equal to the domestic fees plus the amount that you're getting from the government? And is that what's been done recently? Well, to answer your first question, because then the students wouldn't come, and to answer your second question, no, that's not what's been done recently. The reason we see a convergence at the system level in international and domestic amount paid per student is that, as I said, the international students are going to the most expensive universities. The domestic students are concentrated in the cheapest universities, the, the Charles Sturts of the world, the, you know, the Murdoch universities, the places that are less elite and thus less expensive as a whole. Okay, so we don't see a convergence at each university in what's charged to domestic and international students. We simply see overall at the entire system level, international students on average are paying as much as domestic students now. Right, right, right. I understand. Okay. I also understand that, I think it's part of your story as well, that one of the reasons that international students are, international student numbers are being boosted, international students are being chased by higher ups at universities, vice chancellors, and so on and so forth is because they can use that, those revenue streams um, more freely than they can use the revenue streams coming yes. from the Australian government, which have more, more strings attached. Do you want to go into that a little bit? It is what your entrepreneurial listeners will recognize as free cash flow. It's simply money you can do what you want with. When a university admits a domestic student, that money that's earmarked for the domestic student, and particularly the research money that's earmarked, it's attached to the education of domestic students, must be used for specific purposes. However, anything that comes in, anything, any revenue a university generates outside of the Higher Education Support Act, meaning this isn't what's being done for the Australian, for the Commonwealth government on behalf of the Commonwealth, on behalf of the public, anything they bring in from outside, they can spend how they like. So in effect, what they're doing is taking a class that used to have 100 students, 100 domestic Australian students, they're adding 50 additional students into the class, and they're treating that as marginal revenue, purely marginal, we're getting an extra revenue from 50 new students, and they're only attributing against that marginal revenue, the marginal cost, that is, you have to hire two additional tutors, maybe each tutorial is 25 students, so instead of having four tutors, you have six tutors. They are not attributing to those additional students the fixed costs of having the classroom, having the computer systems, having the lecturer, having the library, the lecturer, him or herself doing research. None of these fixed costs are being attributed or, or charged against that international student revenue. And, and we've seen this explicitly in the Deloitte Consulting Report that was done for the government on the costs of education. They, they treated all of these fixed costs as non-existent. They simply thought the cost of teaching a student is who you have to hire to teach that student. Well, of course, you have to have a campus to teach the student on. And the problem we have is the international students are not paying the costs of that campus. Instead, the university is taking their marginal revenue from international students, they're paying the tutor that's required, so they're taking off the marginal costs and treating all of the rest as discretionary funds that they can spend how they like. And that's why Australian universities have an extraordinary number of centrally funded strategic research initiatives when you compare them to other universities. So in the US, these are very rare to have centrally funded strategic research initiatives. If you want to have a research project, you've got to go out and get the grant to pay for it. 
because there's no just pot of money at the center to fund you. At Australian universities, the vice chancellors have under their personal control the allocation of vast sums that's generated from international student revenue that is not taken up by this small marginal cost of adding on the extra tutors. And thus, while foreign universities in the US and the UK and you know, Canada in our peer countries, those universities have to scramble for research funding competitively to finance their initiatives. Australian universities fund them centrally out of their own funds. And thus every group of eight universities in Australia has a list of strategic research initiatives. All of them or almost all of them targeted at the sciences. And I suspect, although I only have circumstantial evidence of this, that they are targeted at the recruitment of a specific group of highly cited researchers, the highly cited researchers who drive the rankings of universities. Right, we're going to come back to that in, in just a moment. I was just wondering when you were talking about these sort of vice chancellors and high, higher ups kind of siphoning off this money and using it as a discretionary fund for international students in particular, is, is there any kind of quick fix for this? Would there be any way of kind of legislating that or, or legislating for that, you know, preventing them from acting in that manner, making sure that if they have X number of international students, they're also building X number of extra classrooms? Or would that just represent too much of a of interference on the part of the government into university life? Look, I I think that would be an unrealistic burden of interference in how universities manage their day-to-day -day operations. But I do think a very reasonable legislative reform would be that international students, in addition to paying for their education, their direct educational costs, should bear an equivalent portion of the larger infrastructural costs of the university, which is to say if the Commonwealth is paying you know, an, an extra 50% on top of the tuition subsidy it gives us to domestic students, if the Commonwealth is paying for research and infrastructure and salaries for administrators, well, international students should pay an equivalent amount. That is, it, it would be reasonable for universities to be required not to discount their international student offerings. And if they were forced to do so, I think we would quickly see international student offerings decline to a number similar to what we see in the U.S. I mean, look, the reason Australia is so much higher than the U.S. in terms of international students is not that Australia is a more desirable destination. It's that in the U.S., universities have no incentive to discount international student tuition because universities are not funded directly by the government. Since they're not funded directly by the government, there's, there's no sugar daddy, you know, at the end who's paying for their campus, they've got to pay for their campus. And so if they were to discount international students, that would come out of their budget. In Australia, we have these perverse incentives that operate because of the structure of the Higher Education Support Act, which was structured in a way that did not envisage that anyone would ever think to take advantage of it. I mean, the act was written in the 1990s in an environment where International education was generally seen as something you do as a favor to poor countries, giving people scholarships to come to Australia. You know, the Colombo Plan, for example, was a program for scholars from around Southeast Asia and South Asia to come to Australia who were su subsidized by the universities and the government. No one envisaged that universities would see this loophole and just start admitting extraordinary numbers of international students. So if we made that reform, I think the student numbers would come crashing, international student numbers would come crashing down, and that would really solve the, the larger problems. I see. So they're able to use the international student money as a slush fund precisely because they know they can rely on funding for um, 
for home students, domestic students from the federal government, from the Commonwealth? Look, it's more complicated than that, but in the simple, straightforward yeah. sense, the government's paying for the library anyway. Yeah, yeah. And that's the attitude. The government's paying for the library anyway. It doesn't matter how many international students we admit and allow them to use the library. And I would turn that around and saying, look, if the library is now being used by 50,000 people instead of by 40,000 people, you need to divide the costs of the library over all 50,000. You mm -hmm. can't say, well, the first 40,000 paid for the library. Now everyone else we cut who would we allow to use it is using it for free. Right. That's the contrast in the two models yeah. of understanding the university. Okay, another thing I found really interesting in your book was this section on international research rankings, or league tables, as they'd say in the UK. So just briefly then, what role do you think that these global rankings are playing, uh, in particular in the way that Australian universities are kind of imagining themselves and designing policy? We've all gotten so used to them that we don't realize that international rankings only date back 20 years. The first international ranking was in 2002. That's how new they are. Universities now routinely chase the rankings in Australia. Now, the rankings, the international rankings, are based almost entirely on research outputs. And there's a structural reason for that. Teaching quality is impossible to directly compare internationally. We, Australia has, ironically, a fantastic set of surveys called the QUILT, Quality Indicators for Teaching and Learning. Fantastic set of data at a very detailed level about teaching quality. It doesn't enter into the rankings because it's an Australian database and Australian universities are loath to be ranked domestically. In fact, the quilt data originally were not available to the public. <laughs> they were, the university's names were blanked out so that no one would know which was the best university for teaching. So we, ironically, we have the data in Australia to create a very high quality comprehensive league table for universities that includes both teaching and research, but we don't use it. Instead, we use the international rankings data, which are entirely driven by research. Not only that, they're overwhelmingly driven by research in the sciences. So that one ranking system, the academic ranking of world universities produced originally by Shanghai Jiao Tong University in Shanghai, explicitly excludes the humanities. It's only a science-based ranking. The Times Higher Education ranking, which comes out of the UK, does have a line for the humanities and social sciences. But when you go down into the details, you find that of the 24 fields they rank, 23 are sciences and one is humanities and social sciences. So there's a tiny weighting for the humanities and social sciences. And I, I, should I, add, I like the, the academic ranking of world universities. I like the fact that they don't even give any credit for books which uh, no, books most exist. humanities fields is kind of one of the major things that and, people are... And there are, there are technical reasons for this. The, the reason is that the international databases are article citation databases. And so the two main databases that are used for these rankings, one is used for the Shanghai rankings, its competitor is used for the Times Higher Education rankings. These databases are journal article databases, which include journal articles keyed to author and keyed to institution, and the number of other journal articles that cite those articles. So if that's the data you have, that's the data you use. The result is that university rankings are driven overwhelmingly by a small number of highly cited researchers. There are only some 2,000 of them in the world. They're on a list, that list of highly cited researchers. If you get on it, that is gold because it means every university who's competing for these rankings will desperately want to get you affiliated with their university and get your 
citations. Now, the Shanghai ranking explicitly gives credit for how many of these HCRs do you have. The Times ranking, well, if you're a highly cited researcher, and when I say highly recited, I, I mean, there are scientists, scientific papers that routinely get you know, 400, 500, 600 citations, whereas a social science paper would struggle to get one or two citations. So being on this list not only helps you for the Shanghai rankings, it also is vastly disproportionately beneficial for the Times. Well, I've, read, I've read that uh, half of all humanities articles actually get zero citations, fewer than one citation. So. Yeah, most, most get no citations at all. And by, by the way, I said 2,000. There are, I apologize, there are now 6,389 highly cited researchers in the world. Nearly 5% of them work in Australia. Now, that's a remarkable number, 5% for Australia, when you consider Australia's proportion of the world population, or even Australia's population considered, say, compared, say, to the United States. You know, it's it's like it would be as if 5% of the world's highly cited researchers lived in Texas or Florida, you know, to give a, a U.S. comparison for Australia. It can be seen as a sign of pride. Wow, Australian researchers are best in the world. Or it can be seen as a sign of pathology. How have so many ended up in Australia? They've ended up in Australia because Australian universities have these centrally managed funds to be able to offer these highly cited researchers positions that are centrally funded without the need for them to go out every year and get grant funding. They can just have their funding funded by the university. That's extremely attractive for a scientist. And so they move to Australia. They don't teach Australian students. They would be largely research only academics. They simply locate their lab in Sydney, Melbourne, or Perth and by, or, or Queensland. And, and by putting their lab in that university, now Australia performs better in international rankings. Right, and then and we what's have incredible this... about this. Uh, sorry to cut you off. During coronavirus, the universities went to the government and said, "We need more money for research because our research funding has been cut off." They meant their international student revenue source of research funding has been cut off. The government gave them a one-time extra grant of a billion dollars. That is, it doubled its research grant for the year. So the government picked up the tab when Australian universities had made promises to all these scientists and then felt they were at risk of not delivering because of the coronavirus, the public was asked to pick up the tab and pay the scientists to keep them here in Australia. Right. So, so because of this focus, and if you're right, because of this, these sort of central funds, you have the situation where, as you say, in some sense, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing success, the Australian universities, because all eight group of eight Australian universities, you say, are in the top 100 in the U.S. news rankings, and they perform very well across the board in these international rankings. Yeah. By the way, I looked up how many New Zealand universities there are in the top 100 of the U.S. news rankings, and the answer is, perhaps unsurprisingly, zero. University of Auckland uh -huh. came pretty close at a, all money. 118. Uh -huh. So, right. right. So then there, I guess you already answered this question a little bit, but my, my follow-up was going to be something like, well, you know, w w I, I can see how they're able to do, do it with these centralized funds, but why is it that there's such a focus on these league tables in Australia? Is it just a matter of we have these funds, therefore we're going to do it? Or is there some other kind of desire for this kind of elite placement that drives Australian vice chancellors? Look, everyone wants to do well in tables and will find ways to do it. I have no doubt that government officials have pressured universities to do better on the rankings because all they see is the headline number. They don't know the, you know, the messy entrails that go into making it. 
That said, I strongly suspect that university vice chancellors are financially incentivized to do well in the rankings. I strongly suspect that it is a standard performance goal set by university senates for their vice chancellors. I say I strongly suspect because every university vice chancellor performance contract that I have attempted to get via freedom of information requests has been denied. I contrast that with the U.S., which has similar freedom of information laws. In the U.S., a study was done a few years ago where some law professors tried to get the university president contracts of all of the major public, the top 100 ranked public universities in the U.S., and I believe they got all but two of them. In the U.S., they get the contract, they just block out the home address, the social security number of the person, but otherwise you can get the contract under sunshine laws. Here in Australia, I either get commercial incompetence or personal privacy. The entire contract is not available to the public. One was leaked to Parliament from the University of Queensland, Peter Hoy's contract, but the senator only read portions of it and did not put the entire contract in the public domain, so I haven't seen it. Right, okay. So what you're saying, let's go back to what you're saying before about these uh, highly cited researchers, because it brings us on to the next topic I wanted to talk about, which is actually the role of China. You have a whole chapter devoted to this. Right. So as far as I can tell, your view is not that we actually have to have a huge, we have to have huge concerns about the role of, for example, Confucius Institute's espionage from the Chinese Communist Party in Australia. I mean, there have been some concerns raised about that in New Zealand. But so in your view, this is actually overblown, right? Yeah, we, we, look, we have nothing worth stealing. I know that's too broad a categorical statement, and somewhere in Australia there's something worth stealing, but that's not why these centers are here. Look, the, the Confucius Institutes are, are primarily there because the Chinese government wants them there, and they threaten Australian universities with adverse, you know, vague adverse consequences if they close them. And so we still have most of our Confucius Institutes open. A higher concentration of Confucius Institutes in Australia than in any other country in the world except New Zealand, which has an even higher concentration, a greater proportion of its universities have Confucius Institutes. But this is really a red herring. The Confucius Institutes do virtually nothing. Our Confucius Institute at the University of Sydney hasn't even run classes, I think, for most of this year. I'm on their list for new class openings, and I haven't received any new class openings, I think, in six months now. The, The Confucius Institutes are a red herring. The real issue here, Chinese state support for research in Australia, something that has been hit the press in, under the term Thousand Talents programs. There are also there are a whole series of associated programs, but Thousand Talents is the one that has kind of gained currency as a general name for all of them. The Thousand Talents programs are programs that the Chinese government runs, mostly for Chinese researchers overseas. If you're not Chinese, you can get one of these grants, but overwhelmingly, these are Chinese academics who've moved to foreign universities, who the Chinese government wants to come home back to China and run a lab in China. The problem the Chinese government has encountered is that most of them don't want to give up their tenured positions at Australian or US universities. They want to stay living in Sydney while running this lab in China. And so the Chinese government allows them to double dip. It allows them to have an entire lab, often with 50 or 100 researchers, high levels of Chinese government funding in China, while still remaining a professor in Australia or the US. This is a real moral hazard issue because these professors at Australian universities are contributing overwhelmingly 
to our research outputs. These, I mean, if you have a lab of 100 people in China and every one of those publications has your name on it, as well as your Chinese collaborators, that's generating enormous numbers of research publications nominally for your Australian university, for which your Australian university doesn't have to pay a cent. The Chinese government is paying all of it. But crucially, the Chinese government is not paying you or your university. The Chinese government, they're paying the researcher a modest amount, but really what the, what the Chinese government is doing is paying for your research to be conducted in China. So when we hear that Chinese collaborations account for some overwhelming proportion of Australia's top university outputs, and Australia-China Research Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, has documented this. In some fields, over 80% of, of Australia's entire scientific output is in collaboration with Chinese scientists, Chinese collaborators. When we see those numbers and we think, wow, an Australian is collaborating with someone in China to produce this fantastic number, that mental model is entirely wrong. What's happening is a Chinese professor in Australia is collaborating with generally his, very rarely her, lab back in China. And the output is recorded technically in the databases as being, well, one is coming from University of Sydney or University of Melbourne, the other is coming from you know, Fudan University or Beijing University. In reality, that's just research being done in a lab in China that the Australian is taking credit for. Now, this is all a problem from a governance standpoint because none of it is recognized on the Australian side. We have a, a transparency scheme that requires Australian universities to divulge its contracts with Chinese universities. But none of these thousand talent awards are contracts between the Australian university and the Chinese university. They're personal contracts between a person who happens to work at an Australian university and a Chinese university. So the money, the Chinese government money is never being recognized in the Australian reporting system. Yet every vice chancellor is aware that many of their top scientists are actually being funded by China. And that Australian vice chancellor being aware of that is probably loath to upset the apple cart, loath to upset China in a way that would force this research to be entirely moved offshore or to be discontinued. It's the informality of these research subsidies that are such a governance threat. Right. So that's that's your theory that actually, you know, these Australian universities are sort of tempted to sweeten the deal or at least sort of, you know, not sort of rock the cart because they're getting all these highly cited researchers. That's very important to them to climb up the research rankings, etc. So I'm just thinking out loud because in New Zealand, it seems like we have much less of that onus on research and emphasis on you know, getting these highly cited researchers. But as you say, we still have a lot of these Confucius Institutes. So is that just a matter of maybe we're just really interested in China or uh, something as innocent as that? First, I'm not, I'm not sure that you don't have the number of research relationships with China. You'd have mm -hmm. to carefully go to people's backgrounds. And even then, you won't find public announcements. It's difficult to find. Journalists have uncovered some. ASPE, the Australia Strategic Policy Institute, has uncovered more of them here in Australia. But really, what we've seen is fantastic research by ACRI. Now, ACRI is broadly considered to be a Let's not say a pro-China think tank, but a pro-Chinese engagement think tank. The think tank wants to have more engagement between Australia and China. They're actually showing it as a positive number, you know, a fantastic statistic we should be proud of and happy about, that in many sciences, 70 or 80% of Australia's research is in collaboration with China. 
and when you get to those levels, that's just that gives that gives the foreign government extraordinary leverage over you. I mean, when 80 percent of your chemistry research is in collaboration with Chinese universities. Well, if your mental model of that is a prestigious Australian researcher kindly works with this developing country to improve its research capacity, well, it's wonderful. When the actual model is a Chinese citizen working at an Australian university has a lab back in China that's paid for by the Chinese government, and that's why you have the quote unquote collaboration, well, now it looks much chancier. And that latter picture is overwhelmingly I've used that word a lot this this hour, but <laughs> it's the only word for it. That, that that latter picture is overwhelmingly the true picture of the situation. And all you have to do is scratch the surface to find it. I mean, I gave a tip to some reporters from Honiswa, the student newspaper at the University of Sydney. They wanted to do some research on Chinese influence in the Thousand Talents program. And I told them, oh, you know, I don't know who at the University of Sydney would be. I'm not going to cast this version on my colleagues. Go to chemistry, material science, physics, and mathematics, and you'll find them. <laughs> and sure enough, they invested, they did a report. They found a whole series of Chinese academics at, at the University of Sydney who had Thousand Talents grants. They published it. Immediately, they were called racist in the student press, and they immediately retracted the article. Uh, luckily, not before copies of it had been archived and we all knew it was there. Look, it, it's just how the business, it, this is how the business works. Hmm. Is it in every case how the business works? Obviously not. There are going to be exceptions. But fundamentally, day in and day out, that's how Chinese influence works at Australian universities. Okay, so you read your book, and it, it, it seems like there's a lot going on at these Australian universities, especially the most prestigious ones, especially the Group of Eight ones. But, you know, across right. the board, really, there's all, there's all this, all these international students, there's this discretionary funding, there are these big kind of semi-independent research institutes uh, bringing in these high citation researchers, producing these high citation publications, collaborating with the Chinese, among others, Thousand Talents Program, etc. What about the whole idea of Australian universities teaching Australian students? Well, this is why I'm upset about it, because this is all a charade. If Australian universities, through good management practices, through fantastic teaching, were able to attract students from around the world to our, if, if all the rhetoric were true, and we were attracting students to our fantastic university, students who were paying top dollar for high quality degrees, uh, no problem. I mean, if we were improving our research by careful management, good education, you know, really working our way up the ladder to produce more and more citations, fantastic. If instead we're just selling our soul to get citations so that we can improve our rankings, well, you know, then I'm I'm very upset. And what we've done is we've sold out Australian students. Uh, Australian students are primarily the ones paying for the system, but they're now in classes that are 50% larger than they used to be. They're now in classes where they have to carry the burden of an extraordinary number of non-native English speaking fellow students. They're now in an environment where we have to change the way we teach because frankly, if we taught with the expectation that our students would have a university level of English from the start. You know, if, if we just had it, the assumption embedded in all of our assignments and all of our classes, the student will speak English competently, we'd be failing 25% of our students. And practically speaking, we just can't do that. We all care about our students. I care about my Chinese students as much as I care about my Australian students. I want them to succeed. But it does mean that I can't teach the class in the same way I would have taught it 
in the United States, or I would have taught it 20 years ago in Australia, I have to take account of the fact that a third of my students are not native English speakers. And that changes the quality and character of education. I think it also changes the assumptions behind it. So we all, you know, when, when we're all engaged in a, in a make-believe exercise, we all lose our commitment to it. It's sad, but it's true. If our students, if, if academics can sense that all the university cares about is generating income to pay for highly cited researchers, those academics become less engaged in their university. When students come to a university where they can see that their professors and their lecturers just don't really care, they don't really care so much. They get less attached to the university. And, and so we, we see kind of a downward spiral where the entire spirit of the university as a collaborative educational enterprise is sold off so that we can have higher rankings, which really only benefit in the end, one person, the vice chancellor, who's able to get a higher salary and a better next job because the vice chancellor has improved the ranking from 120 to 80. And now that vice chancellor is a hot property on the on the vice chancellor hiring market, right? It's, it's just sad to see institutions hollowed out for artificial gain and very individualized gain at that. And unfortunately, I think that's what we've seen. Australian students have not benefited. And I say that categorically, they, they have not benefited. If anything, they've lost out from the dramatic rise in international students. And the universities always counter international students enrich the educational environment. To which my answer is yes, if you had 10% international students who were from a spread of 120 different countries, fantastic. Well, our universities like to say that our international students come from 120 different countries. They don't mention that, yeah, but 80% of them are from two countries, <laughs> yeah, China and India. Well, that really changes the perspective on international education and what potential benefits it might have for our students. Okay, one thing you don't think is so bad as a lot of commentators have taken it to be is this whole idea of a free speech crisis on Australian uh, university no. campuses and, and Anglophone, maybe more generally in Anglophone university campuses. But you do write in, in the opening chapter, I think, that there's no real free speech crisis at Australian universities. You say, if there is a free speech crisis at Australian universities, it's not because people are being fired for their political views. So a couple points there, I mean, I suppose... Are there not cases of people being fired for their political views? I mean, I'm thinking in particular of Peter Ridd at James Cook University. A little bit of a complicated case. The university maintains that he wasn't dismissed because of his views on climate change and the Great Barrier Reef. But it's also hard to see that process, uh, you know, going the way it did without without his views on that issue. Another question I would just raise to you is, okay, even if it's even if you know the number of people being directly fired is quite small. It may be that people are actually, you know, self-censoring a lot. And, you know, we've just done a survey with Heterodox Academy and New Zealand universities, you know, asking students how they feel about being able to express themselves on certain topics in class. And it does seem like there are concerns there. People do feel that they can't speak on certain issues. So, yeah. So what's your view on, on all that? Yeah. Ironically, that was the most controversial thing I said in the book, <laughs> in a book full of controversies. Look, I'm not saying there's no problem. I'm saying the problem is nowhere near as large as people would like to make it out to be. I can contrast Peter Ridd's firing to the fact that University of Western Australia eliminated its entire sociology and mathematics, I kid you not, mathematics departments. And it did this and it, it fired, I don't know how many people, a couple dozen people in those two departments and converted them into teaching only service departments, mainly staffed by casual academics. And it did that because in the 
rankings accounting of things. These departments were not contributing to its rankings and it wanted to pour the money instead into departments that were contributing to its rankings and attracting international students. Now, I don't say that to, to say one is not a problem and, you know, just because another one's a bigger problem. But if we look carefully at the three cases, and, and there are three cases of what I would consider, I think it would have been broadly considered dismissal of academics for their viewpoints. One of them, I'm not sure, has made it into the public sphere, so I won't comment on it. It's somebody I know personally who was fired for private emails and things that he wrote in private emails. There is a second example here at the University of Sydney of someone who was fired for teaching anti-Semitism, not for research and writing on anti-Semitism, but for putting a swastika on an Israeli flag and teaching that Israel was a Nazi state in the classroom. That person, by the way, is, I believe, just won his high court case and is being compensated for unfair dismissal. And then there's the, the Peter Rigg case. Now, the Peter Rigg case, as you suggested, is very complicated. Technically, he was fired because he was told not to disparage colleagues using university resources, including university email. And yet he treated his university email, in effect, as a private email and disparaged colleagues in his university or disparaged the research, didn't disparage the colleagues, disparaged the research produced by colleagues in his university email. Is that an inappropriate reason to fire somebody? Absolutely. Should he never have been fired? Absolutely, he should never have been fired. Does that case show a systematic crisis of academic freedom in Australia? No, I think it shows a governance problem at one university in Australia that overstepped on governance. Now, personally, if I have anything controversial to say, I always redirect people in my personal email. And I think it's something that academics have a bad habit of treating their university email as if it were private. They can say what they want. It's their private email. I have news for everybody. If you work for a company, if you work for a university, your managers can read your emails. Yeah, well, I suppose, what the, I suppose what the exact, it matters what the exact content was, doesn't it? I mean, because I, I suppose like if it's something grossly unprofessional in the sense that it's sort of sexual or scatological or something of that nature, or just sort of really mean, nasty gossip, and I'm doing it with my university email, that's one thing. But if it's just sort of views, and you know, you talked earlier about the yeah. allegation that Red was disparaging research, I mean, surely that's part of... He directly defied an instruction as part of the internal judicial process which under his internal judicial process, he had been told to refrain from commenting on this, and he commented on it anyway. Now, I think he should have been, I want to be clear, I support Peter Ridd. The question is not, was Peter Ridd unfairly fired? I think, yes, Peter Ridd was unfairly fired. He should have been reinstated. This was completely wrong. The question is, is this emblematic of a systemic freedom of speech crisis at Australian universities? Uh, you know, incidents like this happen everywhere. They're wrong. They happen systematically, people at Australian universities, including myself, who wrote a whole book criticizing Australian universities, I've never had a, a negative word directed at me with regard to this book. Now, mm. I think it's a problem that I haven't had a word directed at me. I think someone should have engaged with me regarding this book, but not a negative word. And from everyone I've talked to, all of the examples, and I, do, I should say I have one more example of a freedom of speech issue, again, in Western Sydney, at the University of Sydney, but it occurred at our Western Sydney campus. Again, I'm not sure it's hit the public, and so I don't think I should publicize it. But from everything I know of these various examples, all of them skirt the edges of, you know, university really shouldn't have done that, but the person treated university communications as if they were personal communications, thus leaving themselves open to this kind of bureaucratic sniping. Now, I don't believe bureaucracy should be sniping at their academics. 
But the bigger crisis, I mean, by far, and you, you, you left my sentence right at that point, but the bigger crisis is, the bigger crisis is a viewpoint diversity crisis. Uh, look, the, the problem we have at Australian universities is not that I'll be fired if I say something inappropriate. It's that people were never hired who would have presented a different point of view. And across all disciplines, across all universities, people simply aren't getting hired if they don't accede to the academic groupthink of the people who have come before them. Personally, I'd love to see solutions like academic hiring panels being composed of citizens of the city instead of actual academics from the university. When the University of Sydney was set up, there were no universities. They had to hire their first batch of professors. How did they do it? They created a committee of people in the city who had bachelor's degrees from UK universities and had them sit as experts on a panel hiring the first batch of academics. And I think that kind of community engagement would set right a lot of the viewpoint diversity problems we have in universities. If the universities, if people were being hired by the community, let's say by the university senate, right, which hires vice chancellors, if that kind of body of people appointed by government who are from business, who are from the alumni, from the some staff representatives, but the fact is all over the world, academics are hired by other academics. And the result is they simply reflect the politics of the academics who were already there. And that's resulted in this extraordinary crisis. I mean, if I go back to the Peter Ritt case, why was he fired? Well, yeah, in the immediate sense, he was fired because he expressed views in an email that were contrary to the narrative. All right. Why was there an environment in which someone would be fired? Oh, because there's an entire group think around climate change. Right. Well, our problem is the group think around climate change. Our problem is not that the courageous academic will be fired for having a dissenting view. Okay, so now that you're in reformist vein, and this is absolutely the last question, but can you maybe pick out of all these suggestions you've made, if you if you were suddenly given power to make one major reform to Australian universities, what would you do? I would change the governance. Australian universities should have more input from, dare I say it, from government. We are a democratic country and having more input from the democratically elected representatives of the people would be entirely appropriate. I would like to see much more oversight. And that includes, well, I hesitate to say more regulation. Instead, what I would say is more actual involvement of government ministers and their appointed representatives in the administration of the university. That means having members of academic senates who are uh, responsible to the government, not responsible to the vice chancellor, not appointed by the vice chancellor. Like you having truly independent people overseeing our universities would be just the, the first most basic thing you have to do. People who will not be hoodwinked by, uh, you know, the, the rosy picture presented to them by the CEO. I mean, in the same sense that companies have external independent directors who are serious business people in their own rights. I mean, you, you get the CEO of another company to come sit on your board because that CEO knows all the tricks. That CEO, you know, knows what how things are made. Well, you know, let's have that caliber of people appointed to active academic senates who actively manage their universities instead of just meeting once a month and okaying whatever the vice chancellor gave them. I mean, we have the worst forms of corporate governance from the private sector replicated universally across the public sector. And if that changed, then that hopefully would filter down to a lot more changes that I'd like to see farther down the, the hierarchy. 
Okay, Salvatore, I think I heard you longing a few minutes ago for somebody to say bad things about your book, but I'm afraid I, I can't do that. I, I find it very difficult to say bad things about this book. I think it's very thoroughly researched, it's snappy, well-written. I would you, recommend James. it Thank to uh, anybody who's interested in higher education policy in Australia, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to sort of use it to say some interesting things also about higher education policy across the ditch here in New Zealand. So thanks uh, so much, Salvatore, for joining us and uh, talking about your book, which you can find online, I think Amazon, everywhere else, Australia's universities, can they reform? Thanks. Great to be here.